to Peace in Their Time, Episode 17, The Ireland Interlude, Part 1. This week, we're taking a little break from internal British social politics to go over more long-term difficulty boiling over by 1919, Ireland. Now, I know you're probably wondering why I'm making a two-part stop in Ireland when the topic of this podcast is to provide context for World War II and how it happened, but there is a point. As I've been discussing in the episodes for both France and Britain, the victors of World War I were responsible for making a lasting peace, and for various reasons, didn't. And the critical time to establish a lasting peace is in the first part of our narrative, the 1920s. Unfortunately for Britain, Ireland was one of many distractions from that in the years after the Great War. It's also one that's almost entirely self-inflicted by the British as the issue could have been settled years before that war, and honestly could have been handled quickly after it too. A toxic combination of imperial stubbornness and political apathy that would characterize many decisions of this era meant that the crisis in Ireland was a needlessly long and drawn-out one. For a long time up to 1914, it had appeared as if Ireland was going towards home rule. Until Irish independence, the island had been administered by a London-appointed government, based in Dublin Castle and managed by a viceroy and chief secretary. It was definitely an imposed government, and colonial in its outlook, what with governing from a castle that was simultaneously a palace and a fortress. The viceroy was theoretically the senior position, but by 1919 had lost much of its former power in favor of the chief secretary, whose position focused much more on the day-to-day government. A little problem with that, though, was that the position of chief secretary had been granted more and more as a favor by whomever was prime minister at the time, and the office holders were not terribly qualified to run Irish affairs, and also that the office was seen mostly as a stepping stone or a placeholder to some other more desirable position, which meant that by 1914 it was well known even in British Parliament that the Dublin administration was not terribly effective or popular with the Irish themselves. And for the more forward-thinking, something had to be done. In 1914, the Liberals under Asquith were prepared to pass legislation to give the island its autonomy, but the Conservatives were dead set on retaining London's powers over Ireland. In this, the Conservatives were aided by a faction of Ulster Unionists, the Northern Irish who, being mostly Protestant, wanted to remain within the United Kingdom proper. The Liberals favored home rule, but lacked the wherewithal to force the issue and proponents of Irish autonomy were forced to the conclusion that even the more friendly politicians in Britain weren't terribly interested in their cause. If Ireland were to become self-governing, then it would have to take the initiative on their own. It wouldn't be handed to them by London. World War I put a break to the ongoing debate, though, and plans to pick it up were delayed until sometime after the conflict. In 1916, impatient separatists in Ireland launched their badly handled Easter uprising in response to the delay of action. This rising was duly crushed by a fully mobilized British army, leveling entire sections of Dublin and killing hundreds. Thousands more were arrested. The Irish populace were, oddly enough, not terribly upset at the British response at first. Reason was that the rebels didn't do a very good job hinting to the populace that they were going to stage a revolution in the middle of Dublin. So, civilians woke up one morning and discovered they were in the middle of a war zone. On top of that, there were many Irish serving in the UK Army, which meant that there were a lot of military families that 
weren't thrilled about the timing of the uprising. The resulting destruction and mayhem in the city streets also didn't endear them to the populace. The British, of course, squandered these ambiguous feelings in the aftermath. Fourteen captured leaders were executed on flimsy pretexts over the course of ten days. These executions were heavily publicized and swung a lot of the non-committed public over to the side of the rebels. Other instances of British soldiers going way too far and murdering people started cropping up elsewhere, such as the time 15 civilians were murdered and the soldiers attempted to cover it up by burying the bodies in abandoned cellars. Just the normal kind of counterinsurgency with no accountability. Predictably, this made the atmosphere way worse in the country, and turned an opportunity for Anglo-Irish reproachment sour. Even Lloyd George, with his endless energy, couldn't force through a resolution as he attempted to pass a home rule bill as a response to the Easter crisis, but was foiled yet again by resistance from Irish unionists and a lack of consensus from his own cabinet. Suddenly, the political scene in Ireland turned much more radical. Up to this point, Irish Parliamentary Party had been the dominant group in Irish politics, but their lack of progress and fruitless alliance with the Liberals led to a massive and sudden loss of support. That the British had the gall to institute conscription in the spring of 1918 only further rubbed salt into the wounds of the public. The Irish instead turned to the Sean Fein party to represent them. Sean Fein, which you probably have already heard of, was a younger political party dead set on Irish independence. Many of its members had taken part in the Easter Uprising and were also members of the Volunteers, who were the precursor to the IRA. When the 1918 elections rolled around, Sean Fein cleaned house on the island, scoring 73 seats in the UK Parliament. 36 of those elected were still behind bars from either the Easter Uprising or activities afterwards, though this was kind of a moot point as the MPs not in jail boycotted the Parliament entirely. The Party of Ireland was now Sean Fein, which, thanks to the aftermath of the uprising, had become even more committed towards complete independence, instead of a self-rule deal keeping them in the UK. While those elected boycotted the London Parliament, they did band together themselves and began acting as an independent government. Among those leaders was Eamon de Valera, which, if you're curious about the last name, his dad was Spanish. Uh, he is usually portrayed in histories as a stern, humorless fellow, befitting his academic background, although this was often the impression recorded by people he came into conflict with. And while he wasn't a great public speaker, he was a man of firm principle and strong personality, around which Irish politics would eventually revolve around. He had led troops in the 1916 uprising, in which they performed well, although there are accounts of him going through panic attacks or even a full-on nervous breakdown during the fighting. He was jailed, but eventually released in 1917, only to be arrested again in 1918, as were many others, under suspicions of a German plot. He was among those elected to the Parliament while in prison. This is where I'm going to break for a fun story that doesn't exactly factor into the fate of the world, but is fun enough I'm going to tell it anyway. So, it's late 1918 to February 1919. While in prison, de Valera would use candle wax to create rough molds of a key that would open a cell. The way it worked was that he served in the prison's Catholic chapel, where he was able to get in close to the chaplain's keys. De Valera couldn't get the key itself, of course, out of prison. That would be immediately noticed as missing. What he could do, though, was use the key in wax to create an impression that would hopefully be accurate enough to make a usable key. 
He would then use that impression and draw it onto a postcard, disguised in a quaintly humorous cartoon he enjoyed drawing, which would then be sent to his compatriots. From that drawing, a key would be made and smuggled back in via a cake. Yes, the old cliché of smuggling a key in a cake really happened in this case. Check this out, though. It didn't work. As you might imagine, transferring a key to a wax mold, to a drawing, to the making of another key, might not be a perfect process of key telephone. So, they tried again, and that didn't work. But the third cake was the charm, and De Valera and a couple of his fellows strolled out of prison and into a waiting car. The prison, amusingly enough, was in Lincoln, which was in eastern England. They had to be smuggled all across Britain, and then back across the Irish Sea. Upon arriving back in Ireland, he was made president of the Doyle Aaron, the acting governing body of those Irish seeking independence. Which just filed that story and things that somehow actually happened. It wasn't even the only entertaining jailbreak, but there were many instances of borderline cartoonish escapes. One time, 20 guys got out via a rope ladder, which doesn't sound impressive until you consider it happened in broad daylight. Unless proven otherwise, I choose to believe that every prison escape cliche comes from this time and place. And please, 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 don't prove me wrong. And now that I brought up the Doyle, the cat's out of the bag. The Irish had gotten an independent government operating, and since January 1919, they had declared that independence to the world. It wasn't recognized, and what it actually governed was largely theoretical, but nevertheless, they were consciously crossing the threshold into open conflict with the British was important, too, that they had declared themselves an independent republic. If the time came to negotiate with the British, their position would inevitably be some kind of self-rule or commonwealth, where the Irish were still bound to the British crown somehow. As a result, peace was going to be all the harder to settle once it got to that point. There were also issues with actually coordinating the group as well. Understandably, they couldn't operate out in the open, and actually getting advance word to the scattered representatives across the island was hard. So, when there were actual meetings, there was never a full house of representatives qualified to attend. Also, many were already wanted beforehand, and declaring themselves independent of the occupied power meant anyone else was wise to keep a low profile from that point onwards. Luckily, they weren't immediately taken seriously, so it wasn't like the Brits were going to send in an occupation just yet. Yet. The Doyle tried to send a representative over to the Versailles Peace Conference to plead their case, but like most reps without a state, which included notable good company like Ho Chi Minh from Vietnam, they were largely ignored. So De Valera went to the place on Earth most likely for him to get a receptive audience. He went to Boston. There he would begin a general United States tour and would pitch an independent Irish Republic to the citizens of the United States and maybe raise a few bucks from the descendants of the Irish di diaspora. He wound up staying from June 1919 to December 1920, finding himself sucked into the fractious and competing interests of the Irish communities in the eastern United States. The people in the States were happy enough to receive him, and even drew around 50,000 attendees to a speech in Fenway Park, and he managed to raise over $5 million in much-needed dollars to support the cause over the course of the trip. However supportive they were, though, the Irish communities alone could not secure the support of the United States as a whole. But the money was nice, though. And it would be needed, because in early 1919, the nascent republic would begin deploying its army. 
Now, strictly speaking, the core of these guys were the same volunteers that had been the foot soldiers since before the 1916 uprising, which, appropriately enough, they were called the Volunteers. But now that they had an actual republic to fight for, one that actually recognized them as an army, they started adopting the name IRA, the Irish Republican Army. The term wasn't immediately used everywhere, so for our purposes in these episodes, the terms Volunteers and IRA will be interchangeable. The group was organized along military lines, with the smallest units keeping to a locality and reporting to a higher regional command until it hit the national leadership, which might be overstating things as local commanders had a lot of leeway in how they managed their men, and the size and strength of the various outfits depended on local conditions. It was also prone to factionalism, as much of the older leadership had died or been imprisoned during or after the Easter Uprising. The IRA was very much a guerrilla army, which was actually something new they were trying out. Previously, the idea was to push a widespread national uprising, but since that strategy failed so badly after the Easter Uprising, the methodical hit-and-run strategy was adopted instead. It is also important to keep in mind that as this army was a coherent force before the government, it didn't really submit itself to civilian oversight. To be sure, many Sean Fein members were also in the Volunteers, and there weren't outright breaks between the two. It was just that with the aforementioned difficulty in actually assembling the government, uh, it meant that it wasn't in a position to issue orders to the Volunteers. For most of the War of Independence, it was going to be the military wing of the movement that had the most say-so. So, a slow-motion escalation from basic gang violence to a general insurgency started building. From January 21st, 1919, the date of declared independence, the violence began. It started with ambushes on police forces around the country, and especially in urban areas like Dublin. A shooting here, bomb there, small stuff for a long time. There would not be any big armed uprising with a huge target painted on them, begging to be crushed. One of the most important early battles fought was in the murky waters of the intelligence war. Since so much of the volunteers' operations were in the shadows, the most effective tool the British had to root them out were spies and informants. This is where one Michael Collins enters the picture. Collins was the classic hard-drinking and boisterous Irishman you've heard stories about, and for that he usually gets contrasted with the austere de Valera. But he had a knack for leadership, and despite his capacity for booze, was meticulous with his organization and ability to recall information which meant he was invaluable. But his domineering personality also put him at odds with people who actually had to work with him, and he was prevented from becoming overall leader of the Volunteers. That being said, he was one of its most effective leaders, and in a group where national organization was more theoretical, that counted for more than official positions. He would raise money for the cause at home and provide steady leadership in the Doyle as well. In Dublin, he formed an elite squad of hitmen, who systematically hunted down much of the British intelligence apparatus by the start of 1920. By having ignored this threat, the British had allowed themselves to be blinded by, to the underground army now working against them. And this time, the public would be much more on the rebels' side. The Brits had made themselves terribly unpopular, and now even the non-fighting public would start taking at least passive action. Boycotts were arranged on British goods, or on businesses who were too connected to the British. 
Native Irish collaborators were in many cases ostracized and kept separate from the rest of society. The police force, known as the Royal Irish Constabulary, or the IRC for short, was a special target for this behavior. Starting in April 1919, there began an official campaign to ostracize members of the RIC in particular. They were overwhelmingly Native Irish, at least at this point, so now being cut off from having a normal life, all the while being under threat of being shot or blown up, while maintaining an order that was increasingly unpopular in the eyes of the people you were supposed to serve, well, that all pretty quickly wore on them. Many resigned, and recruitment entered a freefall. No cops meant that a regime becoming more and more foreign had a harder time keeping order. For the rest of 1919 and going into 1920, the situation just got worse for the British. Civil authority began to break down, first in the countryside and as the year dragged on, increasingly into the cities. By autumn 1919, the RIC barracks across the western and southern sections of the island were evacuated due to the pressure of the hit-and-run attacks and demoralization of the force. This evacuation left wide swaths of the country completely open, as without a police presence, the civil one, or at least the civil one that reported to the British, fell away as well. The Doyle quickly moved into the vacuum, and by mid-1920, had established the beginnings of a state apparatus, and even a police force of its own in the west and south of Ireland. The Doyle ran into the persistent issue of actually funding administration in these areas, and many communities had to fall back on themselves. The Doyle did have a major success in keeping the courts running in the evacuated areas, which might not sound like much, but meant the system of law was not just maintained, but de facto transferred to the new government. Over on the British side, even the evacuations were not immediately taken as a call to action. It was only in December 1919, when there was an assassination attempt on the Viceroy at the time, Lord French, that London was stirred from its apathy. French had been the initial commander of the British Expeditionary Force during World War I, and while his record was mixed to say the least, he was a figure of national significance. The attempt on his life finally got the gears of action going. The problem was that much of the RIC had already been hollowed out. Even though Ireland was being taken seriously now, Lloyd George and his government did not want to fight what would have been branded a colonial war by deploying the regular army. So, finding that actual Irishmen were none too keen in actually working with them, the British authorities started improvising. And lo and behold, they had a historical master of shooting from the hip at their disposal, Winston Churchill. I haven't actually mentioned him too terribly much up to this point, mostly because he's still mildly disgraced from the Gallipoli fiasco back in World War I, and since then had been content to bounce around government postings. Also, I'm going to be talking about him a whole heck of a lot in the future, so I didn't want to get too burned out up front. But at this moment, he found himself as the war secretary, and this was turning into a war. So, finding the RIC disintegrating as a coherent force, he decided now would be a good idea to boost their numbers and also find a bunch of war vets some decent employment in the meantime. Yes, he's sending in veterans from World War I as ringers to keep the peace. This is going to give rise to two groups, the most infamous and the one that will still get you into a fight in Ireland if you aren't careful, are the Black and Tans. The curious name stems from them not quite having enough new black RIC uniforms on hand issued to the new guys, so they had to use spare army surplus, which came in khaki. 
true to that spirit, these guys were an ad hoc group, and their official standing was that they were reserves of the main RIC force. You might imagine, given the modern-day difficulties in trying to use soldiers as policemen, and, well, this was pretty much the same situation. They were hurried through police training and shipped off to Ireland at the end of March 1920, and while Ireland was geographically close, it also couldn't be considered comfortable home turf. Added to this was the fact that most joined up because they were vets who needed work, so they were also getting into this more with a mercenary mindset on top of the soldier mindset. They knew how to fight, and they were motivated by getting paid, but they didn't really identify with the general population they were supposed to serve and protect. Yeah, you kind of get the idea of where the problem is going to be coming from here. The other group I mentioned were also considered part of the RIC, but what were referred to as the Auxiliaries, or Oxies. This particular group was recruited pretty exclusively from veteran officers, and were also paid notably better as a result. And many of those officers also had some experience in intelligence as well, which was important as that particular field had been decapitated earlier. They were relied on as a kind of spearhead when it came to taking the fight to the volunteers, when a large enough body to engage was actually found, of course. And since they were specifically offensive in nature, they operated as military units using military-grade equipment. As a result, discipline was considerably higher when compared to the black and tans, at least initially. But don't take that as a great sign, because really it would just make their capabilities for mayhem way worse. All the downsides of the black and tans, the mercenary soldier mentality especially, would apply to the oxies as well. And so here we are in mid-1920, just a little over a year after the end of World War I, and the United Kingdom has one of its four major components in full-scale revolt. And while the fiction of using the RIC to restore order is there, nobody is going for it, and even the people across the Irish Sea, back in Britain, knew full well it was English soldiers fighting to stamp out an Irish insurgency. And that is exactly the nature of the conflict. It would be the IRA fighting a guerrilla war against the RIC and its new reinforcements, as well as any standard English army troopers who got caught exposed outside their garrisons. The first rounds through 1919 and the first quarter of 1920 had been a mixture of gang warfare, namely targeted killings and small ambushes, alongside economic warfare in the form of boycotts and encouraging the populace to cease engaging with the British state. Starting on the night of April 3rd, 1920, uh, this would escalate. On that evening, night, the night before Easter Sunday, 315 RIC barracks across the country which had been abandoned were burned down by the IRA. You might wonder why they bothered burning down buildings that had been emptied out months before, but it was only going to be a matter of time before they would be re-garrisoned by the reinforcing English. The IRA also systematically attacked and burned tax offices in Dublin and elsewhere. This is important, as now the British have no way to keep the Irish part of its fiscal network operating. In that day and age, there was no backup readily on hand. In larger cities like Dublin and Cork, the British and IRA would stalk each other at night, there would be midnight raids by both sides, groups of soldiers would roll into towns under the cover of darkness, and tear them apart to root out their adversaries. The IRA continued their hit-and-run tactics, albeit increasingly on a larger scale, uh, never offering that decisive battle the British sought after. Black and tans, for their part, oftentimes lived up to their seedy reputation. Being mostly English, they didn't feel the need to always obey the orders from above to maintain the strict semblance of order. And to again draw a comparison to modern day, the demands of a counterinsurgency, war on the men. 
as they fended off a hit-and-run attack here, a night raid there, a gunfight in a town square over there, nerves quickly broke down. And like modern-day soldiers and militias, they got counterproductively harsh with the populace. The reprisals took many forms. Sometimes the British simply subjected a town or neighborhood to an invasive and intimidating search. Other times, though, they went to a suspect's home, called him out, and shot him in the face. Or kidnapped him and dumped him in the river. And there was always the classic, they were trying to run excuse, which was applied to four teenagers shot on a bridge. All this back and forth steadily escalated the conflict. By November 1920, the Oxies were in full operation in Ireland, and had managed to build up a spiring in Dublin. This was getting to be such a threat that Michael Collins determined that the Oxies network had to be smashed up directly. The volunteers had managed to obtain the locations of 35 English agents, which isn't too surprising given that they really weren't putting much effort into hiding, and they all went to the same cafe to hang out. So, that was convenient in identifying associates. The basic plan of action for the IRA members was to pose as janitors and servants and simply gun down the English agents across town. Think the ending of the movie The Godfather, and you'll get the idea. Big montage of doors being broken down and people being shot up. On November 20th, 1920, the day before the hit, Michael Collins went to a live music performance at a local theater. Across the way, many of the English agents had occupied their own box. Collins cold-bloodedly took stock of the men who he knew were going to die and enjoyed the show. The next morning, at eight different places, doors were busted down and 18 English officers, some oxies, some regular army that were in the wrong place at the wrong time, were all gunned down. This was understandably taken as a provocation by the British. The local authorities urged people to stay home in the aftermath of the morning's violence. But there was a small problem in that there was a football game scheduled for the day. Collins himself had advised that it be canceled as well, but to no avail. The two teams and their fans took the field, and almost right on cue, a joint group of Oxies and Black and Tans showed up to inspect the crowd. The RIC claimed later a shot came from the crowd, and they opened up on the gathered sports fans. Twelve people were immediately killed, and in the ensuing stampede, a woman was trampled to death, and hundreds were injured. Later on in the day, a group of three detainees were shot while trying to run. Their bodies were beaten and disfigured after their murder. This incident would become known as Bloody Sunday, far from the only Sunday with that title, but definitely one of the most notable. Things didn't stop there either. A week later, a group of 17 Oxies were caught in an ambush and gunned down by the IRA. The Oxies didn't take that one too well either. This time, the eye-for-an-eye thing was going to be taken to a whole other level. All this time, Ireland was pretty mixed in just how strong, open, rebellious sentiment was. A lot of places were actually quiet, and you could barely tell that an insurgency was going on. Other places, though, were in the thick of it. The city of Cork, down in the southwest of the country, was a separatist bastion and was definitely in the thick of it. The two sides would often clash in the streets, with one memorable incident around this time involving a black and tan just casually hurling a grenade at a group of IRA members leaving a meeting. The ambush on the Oxies had happened around 30 miles to the west of the city. They had been preceded by weeks of mass arrests and searches into private homes. Coupled with the bloodshed that had recently occurred in Dublin, tensions were running high. On December 10, 1920, the British government finally took the step in introducing martial law in the areas that saw the most violence, which included Cork. What martial law entailed was the suspension of the civil law courts and the enforcement of military authority. 
If there were any offenses, it'd get taken up to the army for judgment. And if you were deemed treasonous, well, that meant you could be more or less summarily executed. It didn't go over well with the local populace. It did go over well with the British troops on the ground, though, as they had every intent of making an example, especially in the city of Cork. With the tacit green light for an escalation of violence given to the British troops, that's where I'll leave you for this week. When we pick back up, the war will enter a more destructive phase that will force both sides to eventually come to the table. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.